How y'all doing this morning? In the spirit. All right. All right. So we're uh, going to do a, a three-part series here that we're entitling uh, Christmas Through His Brother's Eyes. Uh, we will get back to the book of Colossians for sure, but just not yet. We're going to do a little Christmas uh, special here. Through his brother's eyes, and, and we're referring to James, the brother of Jesus. And so we're going to look at the book of James and uh, uh, pull out every week some nuggets from that marvelous book uh, that, that have to do with Christmas, that have to do really with having a, a kingdom perspective on, on Christmas. And then for the next three weeks, as we're going through this uh, book, uh, we'll be uh, bringing up this campaign, making space in our life uh, to... Making space in our radar screen, in our hearts, in our minds, in our wallets, and then in this building uh, to serve the homeless and, and, and the poor, making space. Um, if you have been part of this congregation for more than a few years, you probably have noticed this, that God's really been moving us as a congregation in this direction for some time, uh, in the direction of, of really making, caring for, serving the poor and the homeless uh, one of our highest priorities. Because, as the video showed, you can't read the Bible and miss that point. Over 600 specific references uh, where God tells us, God tells his people uh, to care for those who are vulnerable and oppressed and uh, who are uh, under-resourced. And so we really felt a strong move going in that direction. And this is uh, kind of part of that. In fact, uh, I'll say more about this in, in the months to come, but... Um, there are some really exciting things coming down the pipe on this. Because in the Twin Cities, as in uh, many cities in the United States, uh, poverty has just skyrocketed, homelessness has skyrocketed, this recession has, has hit very, very hard. And because of that, there's a lot of folks who have been thinking outside the box, folks in service organizations, folks in churches, folks in ministries, um, just thinking outside the box, saying, how can we to come together and work to serve this uh, population and to make a significant impact on that? So there's been a lot of discussions that have been going on, and I'm happy to tell you that Woodland Hills Church has been at the center of a lot of those discussions. In fact, we've hosted a number of discussions here, calling people from different organizations and stuff uh, to come together and to brainstorm and uh, ask the question, how can we partner with one another? Instead of working at, in silos, how can we partner together and pool our resources and pool our, pool our time and our talents and, uh, uh, and, and serve this population? How can we transform this building uh, into something that will serve the poor? The whole building. We've got 100,000 square feet over there that aren't being used. And, um, and so we're having all these kinds of, of, of discussions. And out of, the, uh, out of these ongoing discussions, have a, a vision has sort of arisen. Um, some very cool, exciting, huge uh, stuff has, has surfaced. And there's a lot of obstacles to overcome, and there's a lot of challenges to face, and a lot of hoops to jump through. Uh, it takes a lot of time, but uh, it, it, there's a lot of energy and excitement that's being generated by a lot of different people around this. And so I keep that as a matter of, uh, of prayer, if you will, that that uh, we, we really would step into all that God's calling us to step into. It's really exciting. This Making Space campaign is a, a little baby step in that direction. It's just a little, we just can't keep moving in that, that direction. There's, there's going to be more to come. But Jesus told us, right, that if we're faithful in little, he'll make us faithful in much. Amen? I, I, I want the much. I want the much. Uh, but first, we've got to be faithful in a little. So, so I encourage all of us to step up 
and, uh, and, and to participate in this uh, as, as much as you're able to. I, I want to be clear about something, and that is that we're challenging, challenging you in this campaign uh, to give over and above your normal giving. Uh, we're not saying that di- divert your giving to the church to this cause. We're saying over and beyond what, what you normally give, uh, uh, make this uh, a, a, a priority. What we're challenging you to do is, as you're shopping for Christmas stuff, um, make space on your radar screen for the poor and the homeless, uh, the, the, the group of people that are so easy to forget about. Um, it's kind of crazy that a lot of us experience stress trying to figure out what to buy somebody because they don't need it. <laughs> I mean, that's our stress. And yet there's all around us folks who are in desperate need. What's wrong with this picture? I mean, kingdom people, uh, we uh, have a kingdom perspective on this. I, I saw a, uh, uh, or I, I heard on, on uh, saw and heard on the news this last week, uh, that the average person, the average American, will spend over $750 uh, on presents this year. And I guarantee you that 90% of that is on stuff that people don't need. 90, more than 90% probably on stuff that people, that's why we have stress, trying to find out what we're going to give somebody. Uh, and we're just saying, seek God's will about that and consider giving some of that, whatever you spend on Christmas presents, some of that to folks who really do need stuff. Uh, Uncle Joe, who's already 58 pounds overweight, doesn't need that basket of fruit and candy that you give him. A $50 basket, he doesn't need that. But there's, there's a family who, who desperately does. And, and so we're encouraging you to, to really seek, consider uh, giving that to the people who really do need it. And if you have to explain to Uncle Joe why you didn't give him a present this year, uh, explain that. And Uncle Joe will probably understand. And if he doesn't, uh, then help him understand. Uh, and in fact, probably what Uncle Joe was going to give you, you don't need either. So why don't you say, hey, Uncle Joe, instead of giving it to me, uh, why don't you give to the Making Space campaign? Uh, and, and, and that will kind of bring Uncle Joe more into some kingdom thinking as well. Just seek God about this and, um, and, and respond accordingly. Uh, you, some may think it's, it's rather unwise on our part to be um, uh, giving, raising money for folks outside the church when the church itself is, is kind of in financial straits. I don't know if you've noticed it recently, uh, but if you read the bulletin even this morning, you'll see this. Uh, we, 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 we've taken a hit this fall financially. In the last 13 weeks, I think we've made budget once. Uh, so I, that's why I wanted to really be clear that we're not saying divert your giving to, uh, to the cause, but rather over and beyond your, your, your regular giving. And honestly, if we don't have a really healthy December, uh, uh, we're going to be looking at a, a, a real financial crisis. And so we're encouraging you to, to give to the church as well. But some may think it's unwise then to be raising money outside for outside causes uh, when you yourself are in financial hard times. Because even if you encourage folks not to divert funds, some are inevitably, may inevitably do that. But see, here's the thing. In the normal, normal way of thinking in the world, you first take care of yourself, me and my own, and then if you have leftovers, you give them away. So that's the normal way of doing things. Well, that's not the kingdom way of doing things. Am I right? That's not the way the kingdom thinks. In the kingdom, we right from the get-go are looking at sharing. We live in that. In fact, in the kingdom, the whole divide between us and them 
falls apart because there is no us and them. In the kingdom, those are our brothers and sisters that are hungry. Those are our brothers and sisters that are homeless. And so right from the get-go, we're asking, how, how do we help and serve? That's what the kingdom is all about. The kingdom is about sacrifice. Amen. And, and the beautiful thing about sacrifice is about living in sacrificial love, loving as Christ loved us, which involves a sacrifice. And the wonderful thing about sacrifice is you can do it anytime. You can do it whether you're, when things are going well, and you can do it when you're in financial hardship because it's not about how much you give. It's about how much it hurts to give. That's the sacrifice, and we're to be living in that. So, so let's sacrifice uh, for all the causes of the kingdom, the ministry, but, as, but also uh, helping the, the homeless and the poor. All right, so we're going to do this series on James, uh, Christmas Through His Brother's Eyes. And I want to entitle this morning's message, Christmas Beyond the Pattern. Christmas beyond the normal pattern, the normal pattern in the culture of doing Christmas. And to start, let's just look at the first verse of James. Here's how he introduces himself. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a younger brother of Jesus, and here he's calling him Lord. To, I think it will help in this whole series to spend a moment getting inside the mind of James the younger brother of Jesus. What would it have been like to grow up as the little brother of the Son of God? And you might be thinking, oh, wouldn't that be wonderful, such a blessing, you get to hang out with Jesus all the time. But I suspect not. What was it like to grow up uh, as the younger brother of Jesus Christ? I've always had a heart for James. Uh, I, I grew up under the shadow of a brother who in many respects was larger than life. He's a great guy, a wonderful guy, Chris, love him. But he just happens to be good at a lot of stuff. And, and I grew up under that. He was a football star, a jock in all respects, a high school star in hockey and baseball. But football was his main gig. Um, and he just excelled at it. It wasn't, you know, several times he had his picture in the sports section of the paper, sometimes with captions like, can anyone stop Chris Boyd? I mean, this guy was good. He, he was just a superstar. Um, he, our, our living room was lined from wall to wall with his trophies. I had two over in the corner there uh, that I think I, I was given out of compassion. And I wasn't bad at sports. I just, I, I, I just wasn't him. I, you know, I just, he, he, was, he was good. Um, he never got into any kind of serious trouble. He's the kind of son that makes a father proud. He's the, he, he's, he's the kind of son that you know, just uh, father uh, he likes to put up as a trophy case. Um, never gets in serious trouble. He's just... He's just that. I, well, not, not so much. <laughs> I kind of went down a different path. In fact, as, as often happens, I think, with kids who are raised, uh, who, who have old, older siblings who are superstars and larger than life, it, it can sometimes push you in a different direction, the opposite direction. Uh, so my life kind of took a different trajectory. I think if someone would have given me a philosophy book uh, at 11 or 12 years old, uh, my life could have taken a different course because when I discovered philosophy at the age of 16, it completely transformed my life. Uh, it turned me around. But in our household, um, well, my dad wasn't against academics. He wanted us to be good at that, but it wasn't really at the forefront. It was all about sports. Guys were supposed to be good at sports. That's how you got points with dad. And unfortunately, that slot was already pretty much filled up with Chris, more than filled. I just couldn't ever attain that. And, and so my life kind of went in a different direction. I was the son that got expelled from school several times. Uh, once for setting a, a teacher on fire. It was... Uh, <laughs> actually, I didn't do it. I, 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 I did toss the liquid on the guy, but the, my friend threw the match. And I, 
It was bad. It was bad. Uh, but I, okay, Chris, that never happened to Chris. Uh, I was the son who uh, got caught shoplifting, but that never happened to Chris. I, I was the, the son who was always in trouble. I was the son who hung out with a rock band and in the wrong crowd and got into drugs and all that kind of stuff. That never happened to Chris. It's not easy growing up in the shadows of somebody who's larger than life. Now, what would it have been like for James? Think about this. It must have been, I would think, terrible. Uh, big brother Jesus. Big brother Jesus, he, oh, big brother Jesus, he never gets in trouble. <laughs> big brother Jesus, oh, he's just, you talk about a do-gooder, man, he, he epitomizes it. Big brother Jesus, he never swears, even when he hits his thumb with a hammer. He just blesses the Father. <laughs> or maybe he goes, myself. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> Me. But that doesn't count as swearing because his name is Jesus Christ. Yeah. Oh, what would it be like growing up under the shadows of... Big Brother Jesus, he just studies the Torah all the time. He's got the whole thing memorized. Big Brother Jesus, he's always wowing his instructors and the rabbis. Big Brother Jesus, he's just up there, superstar, son of God. That must have been terrible growing up in the shadows of that. And then add to that that, I mean, I'm sure that the family talks sometimes about the stories that surrounded Jesus' birth. <laughs> Eating supper, talking about, do you remember when... When, when, when big brother Jesus was born, man, angels appeared all over the place. James is thinking, there weren't any angels when I was born. When big brother Jesus was born, uh, you know, the, the wise men came from the east. No dignitaries came to my birth. When big brother Jesus was born, he fulfilled prophecies of the Old Testament, but no one even remembers my birthday. Big brother Jesus, when he was born, he was so important. Herod, the mighty Herod, tried to kill him. But my birthday, my birth didn't get in the newspapers or anything like that. It must have been terrible growing up in that kind of environment. And then consider this. I mean, I can see how James could be resentful in, in any case, but add to that this. Uh, we have early sources that tell us that Joseph died before Jesus started his ministry, which explains why we don't read about Joseph after Jesus is 12 years old in the temple. We never read about Joseph. We read about Mary, but we never find out anything about Joseph. And there's a tradition that, that holds that he, he died before uh, Jesus entered the ministry. We also have early sources that tell us that Jesus had five other younger uh, brothers and sisters uh, besides James. So there's seven in all, seven kids in all, which is pretty typical for a Jewish family in the first century. Now, in, in Jewish culture, it was the job of the eldest brother. If the father died, the eldest brother was to fill those shoes, step into that role. And so the eldest brother was to care for the widowed mother, and the eldest brother was to uh, take care of, of, of the kids. The eldest brother was to go out and support the family. So Jesus was the eldest, and he was supposed to fill that role. But what does Jesus do? He abandons the family. From James' perspective, he all of a sudden walks out. And he's up there on the hillside, you know, doing this stuff and telling everyone he's the son of God. Who takes care of the family? Well, now it would fall on James. There, 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 there had to be some resentment there. And re remember, in the first century Jewish culture, these are, this is a peasant family, okay? They're under Roman oppression. They would have been dirt poor. And it's a culture that doesn't have any kind of safety nets. You don't have homeless shelters and food stamps and welfare programs and things like that. If, if there isn't someone out there working to bring home the bacon, there ain't any bacon to eat. And so that would all fall on James's shoulders. I can easily understand how this guy could have had a lot of resentment. In fact, it's not surprising to me that the Gospels, as the Gospels depict it, James was not a follower of Jesus during his lifetime. Uh, he, he, didn't, he wasn't a disciple of, of Jesus, and I can understand why. Believing that your brother's the son of God would have been the hardest thing in the world. 
If you had to grow up under the shadows of such a uh, person who cast such a larger-than-life shadow as that, he wasn't a believer during, his, uh, during Jesus' ministry. And yet here we find this verse, James 1.1. We read it. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here James is. Uh, after the resurrection, James becomes a disciple of Jesus. He calls his older brother Lord here. doesn't even mention that he's the younger brother. Because that relationship, that natural sibling relationship, now is inconsequential in light of the fact that James knows that this older brother of his was Lord. Kurios in Greek. This, is, this was the, the term that was used for Yahweh. His older brother is Yahweh embodied. And, and in light of that, his being the younger brother now becomes inconsequential. But it raises this issue, what could have convinced James? Now think about this. Uh, he wasn't a, a follower during Jesus' lifetime, but he is afterwards. And what convinced James was the resurrection. He tells us, and we find in 1 first, first Corinthians, that James was one of the ones to whom Jesus appeared. And so the, the, the question you've got to ask yourself is this. I mean, if the resurrection didn't happen, what would explain James's conversion? I, I think it's one of the greatest proofs, not only of the resurrection, but of the truthfulness of, of the whole gospel. The very fact that James and the mother of Jesus are in the congregation of those who believe in Jesus, who call him Lord, that itself shows you that we're not talking about some legend here. Uh, it's a legend that is long, long ago and far, far away and once upon a time. There's a lot of those in the ancient world, but Jesus can't be one of those. Why? Because this isn't a story about a guy who lived a long, long time ago, far, far away. This is a story about a guy who's lived in the recent past. His brother is right here and his brother is a follower. And then you've got to ask the question this. Uh, if the Gospels are just full of tales and legends and the miracle stories didn't really happen, the resurrection didn't really happen, well, then, then how could you explain James's conversion? Uh, if those stories were legendary, not only would James not be a follower of Jesus, if those stories are legends, then James, I submit to you, would have been one of the main opponents of Christianity. He would have been against this. As the legends are being passed on, he would have been saying, no way did that happen. I grew up with a guy. I know the guy. That didn't happen. It's like one time I, in high school, walking down the hall, there's these cute little group of girls, cheerleader types, yapping on and on and on about my brother. And they were all talking about how, did you hear that Chris scored five touchdowns last night in playing South St. Paul? Five touchdowns. And I heard that as I was walking by, and I projected myself into their little circle, and I said, no, it was only four. It was only, he didn't score five, it was four. And I immediately was embarrassed because I was so petty and so jealous, but I couldn't help myself. It was comp I was like, no, it's bad enough, it was four. That was when I, the morning headline was, can anyone stop Chris Boyd? Oh, but see, that's what you'd expect from a younger brother who grew up in the shadows of this guy. If, if they're telling stories that aren't true, this guy would have been saying, no, it, it didn't happen like that. Jesus fed 5,000 people multiplying loaves and fishes. Come on, he just shared his lunch with a couple people. <laughs> Walking on water, give me a break. It was probably a sandbar, you know. <laughs> Raised from the dead. No, no he, he wasn't dead. He was only mostly dead. He wasn't, he wasn't, he wasn't really dead. Now, see, that, that's what you'd expect. The fact that James doesn't do that, the fact that James buys this, submits his life to his older brother as Lord, uh, is, is pretty good evidence that, in fact, this stuff really happened the way they said it happened. And so the question I would just ask anyone who's listening to this in this auditorium or through podcast, or, or maybe you have a loved one who's a, who's a skeptic, if, if you're not a convinced believer, think about this. If this evidence was strong enough to convince the younger brother that his older brother was, in fact, Lord, God Almighty, 
How can it not be strong enough to convince you? How can it not be strong enough to convince you? Just chew on that a little bit. And I encourage you, if you're not a convinced believer, to seriously take this into consideration and do what James did and bow your knee to Jesus Christ as Lord God Almighty. Amen. 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 But I wonder if we can't see reflected in this epistle, uh, this, this letter that James wrote, uh, something of, of uh, his life growing up under, under Jesus. Um, if we don't see here something reflected of the fact that he was, was a part of a family that was dirt poor and, and uh, had the circumstances surrounding it that we know surrounded it. Nowhere in the Bible do you find a greater concentrated emphasis on caring for widows, like his mother, and on orphans. Uh, nowhere do you find a, a, a greater emphasis. I mean, you find the emphasis throughout the Bible, but here it's concentrated on the, on the responsibility of people who have means, who are wealthy, uh, comparatively wealthy, on the responsibility that they have to care for the poor. James is all, is all about that. And nowhere do you find in the Bible uh, a greater emphasis on the need for faith to be translated into action. James is all about this. We see this reflected in, in this passage I want us to now turn to. I'm going to spend the next 15 minutes uh, preaching on this passage. James chapter 1, verses 22 through 27. Listen to this. Holy Spirit, open our minds and hearts to receive this. Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves, James says. Do what it says. Those who listen to the word but do not do what it says are like people who look at their faces in a mirror... And after looking at themselves, go away and immediately forget what they look like. That's odd. But those who look intently into the perfect law, the perfect law that gives freedom, and continue in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but rather doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. And by the way, the word religion, as James uses it, uh, we use it kind of in a negative way today, but, but it just means spirituality. So the spirituality that uh, God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Mm. Mm. James here. Uh, he says, there's three points I want to make on this passage. First, James emphasizes that we, we, we can't just be hearers of the word. We have to be doers of the word. And if we're just hearers of the word, uh, then we're deceiving ourselves. We're kidding ourselves. What he's saying is that, that the purpose for hearing the word is to do it. Hearing the word, he's saying, is not an end in and of itself. Its function is to create doers, people who live differently, who have transformed lives. And, and so if we think that we're doing something uh, distinctly kingdom just by hearing the word, we're deceiving ourselves. If we think that hearing the word is an end in and of itself, that that itself is the kingdom, we're, we're, we're deceiving ourselves. It's got to be translated into action. I, I will confess to you this morning that I, uh, as I was meditating on this passage this week, came under some conviction. I mean, part of my calling is to study the word and to share the word and, and uh, be a teacher but because of that, I think I have a tendency to think that just reading the Bible and studying the Bible is an end in and of itself. It is a distinctly kingdom thing. Now, in my case, it is because I'm called to do that. But what I, if I'm honest with you, and I always try to be honest with you, 
What I have to admit is that as I was meditating on this passage this week, I, I think I cut myself slack in other areas because of that. Like, I've already done my part. I've studied the Word. I, I, you know, I, I, I'm into it more than most people, so I cut myself slack in other areas. When, in fact, the reality is I'm called as much as anybody's called to live, live the life of the Word. And so it was really a convicting moment for me. But I don't think I'm alone in this, honestly. Uh, this passage, this message, if we take it seriously... I think indicts a lot of American Christianity, honestly. Um, as I look at the terrain, the religious terrain out there, what I see is, is, is a culture, a religious culture that in some ways conditions us to think that hearing the word is an end in and of itself, or reading the Bible, or, or talking about the kingdom is an end in and of itself. Like that is the kingdom, to talk about the kingdom, to hear about the kingdom, that is the kingdom. When James is saying it's not. As I, as I look at the, the, the religion of the land, what I see is, is there's, uh, for a lot of folks, the only distinctive kingdom thing about their life is that they go to church and hear a sermon. In all other respects, it just reflects the culture of America. In fact, for a lot of people, what it means to be a Christian is that you go to church and hear a sermon. That's what it means. Are you a Christian? Yeah, I go to church, hear a sermon. As though that was the point of everything. Like, that's what the kingdom is. As though God became a human being and died on the cross so that people could go to church and hear a sermon. Uh, and the really discouraging thing is that there's a lot of studies out there now, a lot of research done that suggests that all the sermons, I mean, we've got a, a religion that's focused on information gathering. We hear, we study, okay, we get all that. We think that's an end in and of itself. But what's really discouraging is that there's a lot of evidence that indicates that, that, that those, all that sermon hearing isn't doing a whole lot of good. Uh, Barna has, has done a lot of work on this. Uh, a few of the statistics he gives is this, that church attenders... Uh, spend uh, in, in America 97% of our income on ourselves, which is about what the average American uh, uh, spends. Uh, church attenders are no more uh, inclined to give, uh, they, they give no more time and no more of their money in serving the poor than average Americans. Uh, church attenders spend just as much on movies, just as much on fast food, just as much on extra clothes, and just as much on Christmas presents as the average American spends. Uh, Church attenders uh, spend slightly more time with their spouse and children than average Americans, and they spend slightly more time in community with others than average Americans, but only slightly. But uh, church attenders are just as likely to cheat on their spouse as average Americans. Church attenders are just as likely to get a divorce as average Americans. And for me, most discouraging of all, church attenders are more likely than average Americans to hold hostile attitudes towards their enemies and to approve of violence and torture against them. So what it, do the math on this, and what it looks like is that we have a religion that's focused on information gathering, and the information doesn't do a whole lot of good. It's not, not, not a lot of transformation going on there. James calls that worthless, doesn't he? That's a worthless kind of religion. If it doesn't translate into action, because the reality is that the kingdom of God is not about getting information. It's about doing stuff with the information that you have. Amen. I want to be clear on this. I, I'm, I'm not... I, I think it's good to go to church, all right? It's good to hear sermons, and not just because it's job security for me, all right? I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of sermons. I'm a fan of going to church. I'm a fan of studying the Bible, of course, and reading theology and, 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 and talking about that. It's all good stuff, wonderful stuff. A lot of books out there. You ought to read them, man. It's good stuff. 
Only, however, if and only if, it translates into something different in our life, if it makes a difference in our life, how we live. Because the kingdom of God is about, is about, about living a countercultural life. It's about doing something with the information that we have. It's about looking more and more like Jesus. It's about living in outrageous generosity. It's about serving the poor, the widows, and the orphans, and caring about them. It's about swimming upstream in the culture. You need information to do that, but see, the information gathering isn't an end in and of itself. Now that brings me to the mirror. Uh, did did uh, Mary come back with a mirror? Where, where is it? Oh, right here. There you go. So it's like this. Here's a mirror. It's like looking in the mirror, he says. To check out how your hair is. I am really looking gruff these days. Okay, so I, I, look, at, look at that. I can get a little reflection there. Where were you on the night of the 14th? Speak! Okay. So I, I, I check to see how my hair is. Is my hair messed up? No, my hair is pretty good. But then I put the mirror down and suppose I... There are people actually who have this affliction. I have no short-term memory. So two seconds later, I'm wondering, oh, is my hair messed up? Oh, no, no, my hair's not messed up. Put the mirror down. Two seconds later, I'm wondering, is my hair messed up? I got to look in the mirror. Oh, no, my hair's not messed up. And on and on and on. The point is this, that a mirror is absolutely useless if you don't have a memory. <laughs> but it's just as useless as hearing the word and not doing something with it. A mirror is as useless to a person without a memory as the word is to a person who will not act on it. That's what James is saying here. So our first point is that we're deceiving ourselves if we think this is an end in and of itself. It's got to be translated into a changed life. And that's the worthless religion. Now James tells us what a worthwhile religion looks like. We read this. He says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. To look after orphans and widows, he mentions those two groups because they are among the most vulnerable in, in the ancient world. Uh, there are no safety nets, as I mentioned, no orphanages, shelters, or anything of the sort. If you don't have someone bringing home the bacon for you, then you're not going to have any bacon to eat. And widows, who didn't have someone to support them, they would often find themselves out in the street. There's no means of support. There's not a lot of job opportunities for single women in the ancient world. And kids who didn't have parents, they would often be the beggars. There's no one to take care of them. And so what James is saying by, is, by pointing out this, this, the, these two groups is he's, he's simply referring to the poorest of the poor, the most vulnerable in the society. So the spirituality that our Father, our Abba Father accepts as pure and faultless, the spirituality that has some worth, that actually is worth something, it has some kingdom value, it's a spirituality that cares about the poorest of the poor and those who are most vulnerable in, 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 in society. Throughout history, those have been the groups that everyone else doesn't have on their radar screen. They're easy to ignore. We all go about our lives. These are invisible people. These days, we build highways to make sure that they, they don't go through those areas of the city because who wants to look at them? But see, for kingdom people who want a spirituality that means something, we're to keep them on our radar screen. That's an acceptable spirituality, one that looks in the mirror and sees the, the, the word and does something with it, and it translates into action. And then James says that a, a spirituality that is, that is acceptable to our Abba Father is a spirituality that's not polluted by the world. That keeps yourself from being polluted by the world. And I'll say more about this next week, but what James has primarily in mind there is the pollution of the, the atmosphere of a fallen world, which when we breathe, it causes us to be self-centered or it inclines us to be self-centered. It's a pollution that inclines us to hoard resources. which simply is, means we, we, we hang on to resources when we have more than we need in a world where there are a lot of people who have way less than they need. It's the pollution that inclines us towards greed. 
It's a pollution that inclines us to think that we have a right to the stuff that we have, the privileges and advantages that we have. And it's a pollution that causes us to forget that we have a responsibility towards those who in this fallen world don't have what they need. It's the pollution of this world. And so the kind of spirituality that is acceptable to our Father and that is true spirituality from the kingdom is a spirituality that keeps, itself, keeps, keeps a person from being polluted by the world. And because you're not polluted by that atmosphere of self-centeredness and greed, you are now freed up to share with those who have less than they need, the most vulnerable in society and the poorest of the poor. And then James says, and my third point is this, but those who look, in contrast to the worthless religion, those who look intently into the perfect law, the perfect law that gives freedom. Look at the law. There's a law that gives freedom. Don't just think about it that way, do we? And continue in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it. They will be blessed in what they do. This law, this perfect law that James is talking about, is the law of love. It's the law of love. He refers to it in the next chapter uh, when he says, if you really keep the royal law, here he calls it the royal law, found in Scripture, which is simply love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. You are doing something kingdom. You are doing something that's worthwhile. You're, doing a, you're manifesting a spirituality that is acceptable to our Abba Father. The royal law, love your neighbor as yourself. And when we do that, he says, when we act on that, then we are blessed in all we do. Notice this. The blessing is in what we do. And this is a, this is a foundational kingdom principle. The real blessing, true blessing, kingdom blessing is found in what you do towards others, in, in sacrificing towards others, in giving towards others. Um, it, it is the greatest, the most blessed thing in the world to be in a position where you can pour yourself out on behalf of another, where you can... Uh, sacrifice resources uh, to care for others. That's the real blessing. It's more blessed to give than to receive, Paul says. Now, now in the fallen world, in our culture, as much as most cultures uh, throughout history, we tend to think the opposite. Uh, we're, we're twisted on this. We think blessing is about getting stuff. People tend to say, well, I'm blessed because I got this nice house, and I'm blessed because I got this fine car, and I'm blessed because I got this great clothes, and I'm blessed because I got this great wife, and I'm blessed you know, because of the great food that I can eat. The blessing is all about what I get. And I, I, I've met multitudes of people who, who point to the, the extravagant wealth of, of, of the country as proof that we're favored by God because we're so blessed. Look at all the toys we have. You know, else has this kind of wealth. So we're obviously favored by God and we're his favorite nation, American exceptionalism and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and the evidence is all the stuff we have. And see, there's, there's a natural sense in which you say, oh, I'm blessed because you gave me something. But see... That's not a distinct kingdom kind of blessing. The, the real blessing, the true blessing, the kingdom blessing is found not in the recipient, but in the giver. There is no greater blessing, there is no greater joy that life can give you than, than when you are freed up to bless other people and sacrifice on behalf of other people. The greatest joy that life can give you is when you find the joy of self-sacrifice. This is part of what Jesus means when he says, if you lose your life, you'll find it. Be an imitator of me, live a kind of life that's patterned after me, and you'll lose your life, you'll give it away, but now you're going to find your life. Why? Because the great, the, what life really is, the greatest joy in life, the greatest fulfillment in life, the greatest satisfaction in life is found when you start living in a mode of pouring yourself out and giving away and sacrificing for, other, uh, for others. That's the foundational kingdom principle. It's more blessed to give than to receive. The New Testament, James tells us it's the opposite of what the twisted culture tells us. It's not about our getting stuff, it's about our giving stuff away. 
And so what James is saying here is that if we look into the law, the perfect law, the law of love, loving your neighbor as yourself, and if you're willing to act on it, what that does is it frees you from the pollution of this fallen world that inclines people towards greed. And when you're freed from that, you are free. Now you're free to be blessed because now you're freed to bless others, to pour out towards others. To be free from the pollution of this world means you're free from the entanglement of stuff. Free from the addiction of chasing after stuff, more and more stuff. Freed from having the tentacles of the things that you think you own, but they really own you. You're freed from that. When we live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us, it's a freedom that you don't have to cling to anything, which means now you're free to invest in everybody else and pour your life out. And now you can manifest a spirituality that's acceptable to our, our Heavenly Father, the kind of spirituality that cares about the orphans and the widows, the invisible people in society, the people on the margins, the people who are oppressed, the people that aren't on other people's radar screen. Kingdom people, they've got to be on our radar screen. My, my prayer for us, Midland Hills Church and Pod Rishoners, as you're listening and whoever else is tuning in, my prayer is that we would, as a body, be people who don't just hear the word, but we, we, we act on it, we do it. And my prayer is that we be a people who are increasingly free from the pollution of the world. The, our culture is incredibly polluted uh, and, and, and in this area. And therefore, I pray we'd be increasingly a body who, who lives out the gospel and cares about the poor and cares about the homeless. And we reflect that by how we sacrifice for them, loving them as Christ loved us when he gave his life for us on, on the cross. My prayer is that we be a people who celebrate this Christmas season and every Christmas season in a distinct kingdom way. That we be a people who celebrate Christmas beyond the pattern, the pattern of this world, the pattern of the culture. That we, we, we just put on display the values of, of, of uh, the kingdom of God. Because the, the truth is that Uncle Joe does not need that basket of, 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 of fruit and candy. But the truth is that there's a family who really could use that $50 to put food on the table if they had a table. And kingdom people, that's to be on our radar screen. So I want to lead us in, a, in an exercise here. We've got a few minutes to, to just let the Holy Spirit uh, apply this to our life. This message and every message is utterly, utterly worthless if it doesn't result in some lifestyle change, some, some difference in the way we live. And so uh, you might want to close your eyes if, if that helps you. But I want, us, I want each of us here to ask the Holy Spirit. And pod parishioners, you do the same as you're jogging or whatever you're doing. Right now, ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you how your life should be different because of this word. Holy Spirit, just reveal it to us. Is there something that we're, that we're to change because of this? And you might get a word or you might get a picture right now or maybe you'll just get a feeling just open your heart up to the Holy Spirit. Reveal it to us, Holy Spirit. How are we to live life different? Maybe that there's something that you were going to buy, but now you see that you're not supposed to buy it. Maybe there's a conversation you need to have with, with an Uncle Joe in your life, or maybe with ten Uncle Joes. Just receive it. Mm. Speak to us, Holy Spirit. Whether a word, a picture, a feeling. It is this morning struck me as so grotesque that 
one of the major stressors that most people feel in the Christmas season, we feel stress, is trying to find something to buy for somebody who doesn't need it. In an environment where there are so many people who don't even have food. Holy Spirit, help us to see this. How is our life to be different? And then, then uh, as, as you get a picture or a word or a sense of how something's to change, will you, if you're a kingdom person, will you here right now um, just commit to doing it? And ask God to help you to do it and to empower you to do it and to remember to do it. Because the minute we step outside these doors or whatever else you're doing, parishioners, the, the minute you put it down, there's a pollution factor out there that causes us to, be, to forget. To forget what our face looks like as we look in the mirror. To forget what our life should look like as we look into the Word. Holy Spirit, will you remind us? And, and, and uh, folks, I encourage you to right now surrender your life to this and commit to it. And we're asking the Holy Spirit to seal it. That we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers as well. Seal it, Holy Spirit. Seal it on our hearts. I'm going to close in prayer. Um, and I want to ask the prayer teams to come up as I do. Uh, and as you're leaving, if you want to find out more about the Making Space campaign, uh, you can stop at the, the Hub. If you want to contribute to the Making Space campaign, you can stop at the Hub. But Father, we just pray right now that we would be a people, individually and collectively, that we would be a people who are, who are uh, acting on the word and who are free from the pollution of the world and who are living in love as you, as you loved us and gave your life for us, who are set free from entanglement and set free, therefore, to be, to be, to be blessed. I pray we'd be a blessed people, a tremendously blessed people, but blessing in a kingdom way, in a kingdom way, that we'd be blessed by being doers, blessed in all that we do, in Jesus' name. And all of Abba's children said, Be blessed. Be powerfully blessed as you leave this place. Amen. God bless.